All right, we're going to do a part two tonight. So if you weren't here last week, do the best you can. I'll help you as much as I can. This is uh, overcoming, overcoming. Well, let me, let me begin by saying it this way. Divorces are gut-wrenching experiences. Those of you who have been through them, those of you who have friends who have been through them, and they've been in your family, you know there is no part of life that a divorce does not touch. I mean no part. Some Christians teach that there is no grounds for divorce or remarriage. Others teach that Jesus permits divorce on the basis of infidelity. And to further complicate things, there is a whole host of issues that come up that are often not anticipated. Financial assets start dividing up the finances in a home. Child custody, single parenting, in-laws, lawyers, remarriage. This is a partial list. The question then, is there a biblical way through this challenge, this maze of challenges? I think there is. God gives hope, gives direction, gives us instruction. And I want to proceed by, if you have your handout, if anybody doesn't, just put your hand up. Dave is uh, somewhere. Somebody's got them back there. All right. The handouts, if you need one. Um, I want to go back, and I need to, before we run it, there are seven of these truth statements that I'm offering to you to help us think through all this. And I want to go back to where we left off last week. The principle stated, and I got about halfway or three-quarters of the way into it, namely that overcoming a divorce unfolds through a biblical understanding of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Uh, Let me ask you, are you clear in your own mind? Do you have convictions on this? Oh, you say you're waiting on the church to tell you what to believe. No, 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 no. No, you're waiting on a one of the pastoral staff to uh, give you uh, the green light, red light, or whatever. No, 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 no. This is not an issue that is solved by any kind of evangelical papacy. Uh, this is something that to which you must come and you must have some conclusions. If you are vague, you're not sure, um, may I say kindly, get as sure as you can, will you? And read it through. Get the divorce passages. Read them through prayerfully. Go through the passages that deal with what is said in Genesis and then in Deuteronomy 24 and Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 and, and Mark 10 and so these passages and others, and think them through. We say, you'd like a little help. Okay, get you a good study Bible. Get you one that uh, the notes can give you some, at least some directional signals. You can look at the notes and see what the issues are, what are they involved. It'll, it'll help you move along through coming to conclusions. If you really want to go into it a little further and you want to read, which reading's a good thing, very good thing, and if you want to uh, uh, try to ferret these things out, here's, here's a book. Uh, there are others like it. This is called Marriage, or excuse me, Divorce and Remarriage for Christian Views. It's the kind of book where you, the view stated, and then the other three responders, they they answer, so each case gets it can be quite instructive, very helpful. Uh, if you want a book on books on ethics, deal with it. Here's a good one: Ethics for a Brave New World by John S. Feinberg and Paul 
Paul D. Feinberg, very good section, marriage, divorce, remarriage. I suggest that it's uh, good to get yourself situated, uh, convictions settled if you haven't. Get them, get them grounded so that, God forbid, something will come up in your family. And then that's where it will really test you when you're emotionally, emotionally um, impacted in a huge way. Where are you going with this? What will you do? All right, enough said there. Now let me come back to this principle with regard to marriage, divorce, or remarriage. Now, my intention here is not to weigh out all the issues regarding divorce. That, that would be a different kind of study, which I would be prepared to do if I had to do it, have done it here in the past, more than one, a number of occasions. My intention in, over, in this message, overcoming a divorce, is to give some, uh, to give instruction, to offer mercy, to offer a way of seeing how God would look at the circumstance of a divorce, how to weigh it out, how to think through it, pray through it, and work on it, and handle it, handle it in a God-pleasing way. That's my intention. All right, but... One, um, we'll have to, what we're going to do is just briefly touch on the issue of divorce. After having stated the standard with God, which God has said regarding marriage. I'll make five statements here on the issue of divorce. Just five. This goes back to last week. That when Jesus was approached by the Pharisees, this, remember I opened up with Matthew 19, 1 through 12, which is, the big passage on this, big in the sense of it's extended, it's longer than, obviously, a lot longer than Mark's and Luke's account, and gives nuances to the issue we need. That when the Pharisees approached Jesus, they were trying to put him on the spot with regard to divorce. And they throw at him Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. The reason being is that there was the background of two of, of differences on this subject, just like there are today, <laughs> that you have, as I showed you, four, four Christian views. Well, there were two prominent views in the Jewish community in the first century. There was Rabbi Shammai, who, and listen carefully how, you know, his view. He was saying that God has limited divorce to the cause of infidelity and that one must not seek a divorce except for unfaithfulness. Now, this is a, this is a trick question. Was he right? Because when you read through this account in Matthew 19, you may think that, well, Jesus is choosing sides with Shammai. Is he? All right, we'll come back to that. Then there was Hillel, Rabbi Hillel. He was wide open. I mean, his, his interpretation, and therefore uh, those who followed him, that uh, for practically any and everything. Well, here's what Jesus proceeds to do, say with this in response to that. First of all, he insists that Moses did not command a divorce. He did not command Israel to divorce their wives at all. That was a passage in Deuteronomy 24, which was stating a regulation of divorce. You know, the Old Testament and the law regulated other things. It regulated slavery. It uh, regulated Polygamy, it regulated sins. And so Moses did not command divorce. And Jesus says that it was, when it did occur, it was permitted as a last resort because of hardness of heart. The second thing I want to point out about the passage is that Jesus, in Matthew 19, he offers a, 
a, a, an exception clause which says, except for divorce, except for the cause of immorality, porneia. What is porneia? Now, here is where if we were doing a, an extended study on divorce and remarriage and going through all the issues, we would go through, I would take you through the different views. But we're not here for that tonight. And, uh, but I will say this, that porneia, in my understanding in working through this, that he is re- it's referring to sexual activity between two people who are not married to each other, no matter what particular form it takes. Certainly adultery or homosexuality or bestiality. It covers the spectrum of immorality. Thirdly, Jesus, I believe that he says that a marriage may be dissolved when infidelity takes place in a narrow, narrow exception. His disciples thought that he was being very conservative and rigid in allowing divorce for only one cause. Now, the difference between what Jesus was saying and Rabbi Shammai is Shammai was saying, you, can, you get a divorce for this, only, this reason only. You get one. That God didn't limit divorce at all in the Old Testament. It wasn't as, get a divorce in no cases but this one. You, you hear I'm saying this? There was no command. Jesus is saying there's no command to, though it was permitted. And... But at that same time, divorces were quite plentiful in the first century in Jesus' culture. And actually, infidelity was not a common cause. Fourthly, I'm just summarizing for you what I think Jesus is doing there in Matthew 19. There is a question that comes up. When you go to Mark in chapter 10 in verse 11, which is really a condensed version of this, he does not include the exception clause, which has led to stoke the fires further of debate between the no divorce, no remarriage, and divorce is permissible. There are those who think that because it's not included in Mark 10, 11, the exception, that that we then have to go back to Matthew 19, along with another assumption, namely the indissolubility of marriage, which is assumed, brought to the passage, as then with its, the exception being deleted or not in Mark 10:11, So these two streams of thought and some other come together, and so some insist, there you are. So we'll, they want to take the Mark account as essentially trumping the Matthew account. And I'll just say two things quickly here. If you, for our purposes, I have to be brief on this. That Jesus made both pronouncements. Sometimes he made the exception explicit. Sometimes he didn't. And secondly, there are two different contexts in Matthew and Mark. Matthew, it's... It's a, very, it's a public response to a public question. And in Mark, the omission takes place in a private meeting with his disciples. Now, I can give you examples. I won't unpack them, but a hermeneutical um, compass setting on this is that you do find exceptions in other areas in the New Testament. For example... In Romans chapter 13, obey government. Do you get it? He doesn't give any exceptions. You obey government. What do we find in Acts 5 and 29? We find that you, you do not obey government when you are called into a disobedience to the command of God. Another example. There's the statement in 1 Timothy 4, 4 through 5. You are at liberty to eat anything. Freedom to eat. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 8.13? You should limit your freedom 
and limited in that you will not eat certain meats given the circumstances and the danger of, of uh, offending someone. So there is a principle of logic here that has to come into play, and that is exceptions modify rules. They don't change the rule or negate it. For example, we have, you shall not murder. But then the rest of Scripture, in the Old Testament even, you are Israel's capital punishment. There is self-defense. There is just war. So those modifications don't negate the general principle, but they are to be taken into account. And so, conclusion then on this matter of divorce, there is no command for the offended partner to end the marriage. And what Matthew 19.9 is doing, it's an assessment of the sinfulness of a certain sinful situation. And here then is how you handle it. All right, that's all I'm going to do with that. And I think if you've got questions, if that's really at this point kind of a hot item for you, we'll have questions at the end. And or if you wish to come up and talk about it further, we can. But let's then take the third issue here, namely all right, marriage, divorce, just trying to give you some direction. You're caught up in a divorce. Let's say it's, it's in your family or a friend, somebody seeking counsel, or it's you. What about remarriage? Well, remarriage is permissible if there has been a valid divorce. That's my conclusion. Now, let me walk you through. Um, let me walk you through the thought, and best way to do it is just have you look at First Corinthians chapter seven and verse twenty-seven. Could you turn there, please? First Corinthians seven, verse twenty-seven. First Corinthians seven. That's uh, <laughs> I. I remember well. That was one of the first books I started to preach through back in 1960. Was it 65? So, and at my first church, and I was just full of steam and really going to hit it. And man, I started hitting all kind of big issues. And well, I got to work through these things. And then when you get to chapter seven, it really hits the fan. And we got all these, on the first reading, these exotic situations. What is he talking about? And the problem is, is that you, we, we've got answers, but we don't have questions. So you've got to do backtracking. With that said, chapter 7 and verse 27, notice what the apostle is saying with regard to marriage and Christian service and the importance of stabilizing yourself and not making radical changes. The Corinthians were, they were on the edge of some very seriously difficult times. And he's working through principles here for the purpose of remaining, simplifying and stay steady and don't complicate things. And then in verse 27, he says, are you bound to a wife? You're married. You're enjoying marriage. Do not seek to be released. Don't get a divorce. Are you released from a wife? Divorced. Do not seek a wife. Now, the word release that's, that's used here, it's the word luo, which every Greek student knows that one. Luo, luai, luais, luai, what, luomai, luete, luosi. That's the paradigm for the, the Greek verb, I, you, he, you know, that we do that in English. There it is in Greek. So we know luo to loose. And the point that he's making here, he's not talking to, there are only two ways then you could be loosed from a wife. It would be death or divorce. Well, he's not talking to dead people because that really is not an issue with dead people the last time I checked. That uh, he's talking to those who divorce. If you are at least divorced, do not seek a wife. But if you should marry, you have not sinned. All right, I think what he's, if I, let me briefly unpack it then. There is a potential danger in divorce. This is really maybe the more serious aspect of divorce. 
namely the potential for an improper remarriage. So when he says, do not seek a divorce, do not seek to be loosed. Or are you loose from a wife? Are you properly divorced? Is his question. Are you properly divorced and therefore free from a wife? If so, don't try to complicate, don't complicate your life by remarrying. That's a general principle. Now, it's not a moral absolute. He's giving counsel. But if you do remarry, you've not sinned. So marriage is fully legitimate. It's a godly option for both the, divorce, both the divorced and virgins, as he goes on to say in verse 15. But wrongful remarriages would constitute adultery at the moment of entering into the marriage. And therefore, that requires some biblical uh, assessment and response. And if you have a question on that one, on that aspect of it, we can deal with it later. Are you, you with me? All right. Now, let's move to the fourth principle. We ought to accelerate here. Fourth principle, overcoming a divorce. Overcoming a divorce is delayed and complicated by an unwillingness to forgive. Now, the question is, well, who needs to forgive whom? Uh, I would say that there's probably a lot of forgiveness that needs to take place. My experience has been in talking to warring couples, those on the cusp of thinking about uh, a divorce, and they're angry at one another. And I've looked at many couples sitting across from me where it is total war, anger. We are to forgive others as God has forgiven us. We're to forgive others as God is to forgive us. And, and there is the aspect of forgetting. Let me speak to that. We forget the past when we forgive the way God forgives. All right, let's pursue that a little further. When I've sinned against another person, I must first of all repent of the sin against God. That's my responsibility. Matthew six twelve. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. So on this issue here, in any forgiveness in any relational uh, conflict problem, no grudges are allowed. I'll stop and ask you a personal question. Are you carrying any grudges? Are you, any, you got some resentments? Somebody tick you off and you just, you've really never faced up to it. That's not good. You have had some bad food, and it's going to catch up to you. It's not a benign situation. Resentment and grudges, they'll pollute our conversations, our relationships, our children. Bitterness, which comes out of this holding on. You remember we dealt with this way back overcoming regrets. That bitterness will take root, and it will poison our motives our moods, and our mental attitude. Bitterness is serious stuff. Past grievances are not forgiven now. Let me go back to when I said to forget, when you forgive. Past grievances are not forgotten in the sense that we lobotomize our memories. But rather we sanctify them. Ah, we sanctify our memories. We go after them, handle them in the right way, because you just can't remember, uh, disremember everything. Now, you can make an argument that you can really mem minimize memories. That's another issue needed with memories and so forth. By the way, the Psalms give a lot of help here in dealing with the whole issue of memory. I remember doing a study on that one time. I come out and one, I forgot which Psalm, and how, uh, you know, David's into remembering, remembering and remembering. And that's interesting because a lot of us, I mean, we all have to deal with memories, don't we? <laughs> all right, another issue. But we don't seek revenge. We don't nourish them by gripe sessions with other bitter people. What do we do? When we repent and confess our sins, God will not withhold forgiveness. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Now, it requires some self-examination. 
Search me, O God, and know my heart. But what is repentance? Repentance is a turn from my sin and a restoration of fellowship with God. It's a frank admission of wrong thinking that led to wrongdoing. See, self-examination, awareness. Repentance is the very opposite of making excuses and alibis. I will tell you, folks, in working with couples who are thinking about divorce, getting a divorce, or fresh through a divorce, oh my, alibis, and I'm going to deal with blame shifting here a little bit more, they are they, 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 they pop up, pop up, pop up. Forgiveness does not seek revenge and indulge in hateful speech. You'd like a little barometer on yourself that forgiveness does not seek revenge and indulge in hateful speech. Now, let me say something here. This is just a sidebar. We actually have two categories of, I guess you could say three, of divorces. In a, in a, let me explain what I mean. You have two unsaved people who seek to get a divorce. Some of you may have been in that situation. Unsaved, this is a common scenario. Young, get married, too soon, without wisdom, unsaved, no real clear direction as to the issues involved, and get a divorce. Two unsaved people. What's needed? First thing, the new birth. <laughs> the new birth. Regeneration. Lord, I need to see life like you want me to see it so that I can begin to deal with issues like you want me to. Secondly, there are divorces that occur among saved people. Um, let me just speak to the non-infidelity issues, divorces that occur, which I would say that in those that have come up in this church, those divorces that have come up, and they have, and we've had, we had a couple of seasons of these. This is, I have no desire to revisit those, those seasons here tonight. But we had, it just looked like it was kind of a little mini epidemic. That what do you do if it's non-infidelity based? You seek reconciliation. You lay down your arms. You come to God in humility. You accept responsibility. You seek help. You think, though this is not the this is not the complete spoonful of medicine, that try to appreciate some of the tragedy of a broken home and the consequences. If there is infidelity, divorce between two saved people. Then I've addressed that in the issue of divorce and remarriage. But even there, reconciliation may be possible. Let's, go, let's talk about repentance. Let's talk about change. Let's talk about the hard work. The other category I won't go into now, but it would be if, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, if a non-Christian says to the Christian in a marriage, I'm out of here. I cannot tolerate life with a Christian weirdo, <laughs> or it's just, this is too much. I don't, so on. And Paul gives directions as to how the believer should handle that. All right, so therefore, do we get this matter, the importance, the importance of the willingness to forgive and the dangers of an unwillingness to forgive? Now, I do have one little question. I'm going to put it here rather than at the very end. Is it necessary to forgive myself? This has become kind of a popular little slogan in circles. I think probably this is a gift of contemporary psychology. You gotta forgive. You've, Christ, you've heard Christians talk this way. You've got to forgive yourself. It's nonsense. You can't. That, no, sins are against God. And I think this is a lamentable, self-centered approach to forgiveness. That's all I'm going to say at this point. It needs further explanation, I know, but I'll leave it at that. Does forgiveness remove the consequences of sin? Well, you know the answer to that one. No. 
the judgment of God's removed, you restore fellowship with him, but there will be ongoing consequence. All right, number five. Overcoming a divorce will not happen without a commitment to being a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. Matthew 5, 9. Now, peacemaking, peacemaking means two things. Let me clear this up before we proceed. Two things. First, in the first place, peacemaking is a commitment to obeying God as I work through conflict. That's, that's generally true in any, any situation. Misunderstandings, differences in values and goals and priorities and expectations and interests and opinion. All these things can be barriers to achieving peace. So why am I mentioning it here as being a peacemaker? Even if, hear me, even if a divorce looks like it's just going to run its course, and, you know, you may have been caught up in that. You can see you're into situations that are beyond your circumstances, beyond your control, and you're trying to give counsel, and you know that no one is really listening to what you would advise them to do. However, still, still, even if a divorce is running Along these tracks, you can't stop. Could you please commit yourself to being a peacemaker? Now, that may sound contradictory, but can we, can we work toward peacemaking through this process? And secondly, peacemaking is really the way to marital reconciliation. If it's to happen. All right, so let's go from there. I say then, peacemakers get the logs out of their own eyes. That's where it starts. In order to advance in obedience and maturity, I've got to deal with myself. So if you're going to sign up for being a peacemaker, work on yourself. And I will tell you, if you, when, you, when you come between two people, what's the proverb, entering into somebody else's conflict or grievance, it's like picking up a dog by the ears, uh, something like that, that you can get yourself and you will become the hated person by both parties. Been there, done that. <laughs> And that you become, it's, it's as if, and I've, I've actually found myself just stopping the conversation and saying, wait a minute. Yes, I do have, I am not a perfect human being, but I'm not the problem here at this, at the moment. <laughs> could, could we, because you find both parties are wanting to turn on you. And sometimes trying to find some inconsistency, dis, inconsistency, discredit you, that sort of thing. So that's just a little Reminder, when you find yourself in a situation trying to help someone. But peacemakers control their tongues. They seek to extinguish the flames of strife and disharmony. And there are times when you need to overlook an offense. Love covers a multitude of sins. So what First Peter says in 4.8, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, there are times in the peacemaking process, in the disagreement, the conflict, and you know, the wheel, uh, it's the, the slippery slope, rather. It's not a wheel, it's a half a wheel. It's the slippery slope. In the peacemaking seminar book, you, you're familiar with that, and you ladies were, went through this to some extent over the, at the conference, that you find discussion is necessary. If the two warring parties, the two conflicted parties here in a divorce, seeking divorce, that can we have a discussion? We've got to get there. Guarding our tongues, watching our tone of voice. We've got to talk through. They're just issues. We've got to talk about finances. Well, that's a tough one when everything's going okay. <laughs> Custody of children. Oh, my. Go to a mother's heart on that one. Can we talk about it without just being inflammatory? and uh, angry. But then there are times when negotiation is necessary. So that means you're going to get someone to come, and you get a third party. Come, can we sit down? Maybe that'll help. Somebody that's respected and can you, you trust them to be fair can help you to talk through things. That can work. Well, this I took this right out of the Peacemaker Seminar, 
which says, Substantive issues are resolved through a bargaining process in which the parties seek to reach a mutually agreeable settlement in their differences. That's your goal. All right, peacemakers. Not through with it, just a few more things. Peacemakers know that there is a price to pay for being a peacemaker. I've already spoken to that. I don't know that I need to go with it further. But taking the high road of obedience to Christ, you can be misjudged or slandered. There's the pain of listening. That's part of the price of being a peacemaker, just listening. The pain, and, and there, there, there can be anger between the children and a parent. Courage is needed. Sometimes parents go AWOL on this issue. And their children get locked into what is a biblical, unbiblical pattern. And parents don't say anything. Now, believe me, I know what you're walking through on this. And I know that son or that daughter is always going to be your son or daughter. So it's not like talking to a stranger where you put it out there and move on. But still, there is a loving, kind, and directional way to express yourself rather than it's a, well, leave it at that. Peacemaking. Peacemakers are willing to dig other wells. Willing to dig other wells. You see the reference I have there in Genesis 26, 18. Uh, just briefly, that's, that's where Isaac, uh, he's, he's got problems. He's living in Philistine territory. He's... Uh, Every well they dug, the Philistines filled it. The wells that Abraham, his father, dug, the Philistines came along. And, you know, that's pretty nasty stuff to fill in somebody's well. I mean, water, (laughs) you've got to have it. And so Isaac goes out, and I think it's like three occasions where he digs wells. And he's down near a place called Gerar. This is down the southern part, south of Gaza. And uh, they come, and they take his well. What does he do? He goes over and digs another well. What does he do? They come there, take that one. What does he do? He goes and digs another well. (laughs) And what, what you see taking place there is that you see Isaac handling his suffering. You took my well. And he handles it in meekness, handles it in forbearance. And I think it's a, it's a beautiful picture that, and addressing the question, am I prepared to yield my rights for the sake of God's honor? That's got to be a mentality through this. Any conflict. And, for example, when there is a social event, I'm thinking of divorce now having happened, and there's a social event, maybe a wedding. Ooh, a wedding. I could tell you some stories. And it's really a bit can be quite complicated. Who's walking with whom? Who's sitting where? Uh, who's dancing with whom? Where are all these say who's going to speak, who's going to not speak, who's, you know. Well, so it's the occasion for all the family members to be there, ex-spouse, his, her, new wife, her husband, children, his, hers, ours. Mix all that together. And mix it together with, God forbid, but it happens, resentments, bitterness, jealousy, Oh, peacemakers, Lord, can we, can we not have common courtesies here and proceed through this? Number six, overcoming a divorce demands a keen eye for the dangers of blame shifting, bitterness, and fear. Ah, oh, blame shifting. We are all guilty of it. We've done it. Go ahead. Fess up. We've done it. It is really a prominent issue in a divorce and divorce process and aftermath. How can I know if I'm blaming others for my problems? Is there any way to know? I'll give you a few diagnostic questions. That a refusal to deal with my own wrong attitudes. I'm an arrogant. I'm good. Sorry about you, but I'm good. Oh, really? (laughs) Um, Resorting to disguised acts of revenge. 
refusing to talk to my children, ex-spouse, in-laws, that'll tell you a lot. Complaining about the offending party and criticizing them. Getting angry when my faults are brought up. Refusing to give, forgive my spouse, my ex-spouse. Blame shifting. You'll stall out. Blame shifting will stall out a conversation. Actually, in counsel, I can tell you that after 40, almost 50 years of this kind of thing, you, you, you encounter this in the first five minutes. You'll see it come up. And uh, bitterness. Let's go to bitterness. I'll just say this since we've covered another play. Bitterness is an antifreeze cocktail. Do you know about antifreeze cocktails? Um, there are people, there was one noted case here in the area where this woman, I think was it two husbands that she used this antifreeze, you know, has that uh, deceptive color, smell, and taste. I've never tasted it. That's, this is what they say. <laughs> uh, but... But it will poison, bitterness will poison your soul, make you difficult to live with, make you joyless and cynical. It will jaundice your outlook on the entirety of life. What about fear? Fear is an intoxicant that keeps us from making the right decisions. It blurs our moral perspective and imprisons us. So out of fear, you start doing things to protect yourself. Now, we did a, to protect yourself. We did a series, or not a series, excuse me, about overcoming fear. So I'm just going to reference that. Number seven, that overcoming a divorce is a long road best traveled by communion with Christ. I'm referencing here John 15, 1 through 17. It's the familiar passage of fruit bearing. In the upper room, the upper room discourse, John 13 and 14 and 15 and 16. Let me preface, I'm going to say, I'm going to make three statements regarding this matter of abiding in Christ and communion. But let me, let me set it up this way. You feel like you've come to the end of your rope. You're a single parent caring for the children having to work, and longing for some companionship. There are decisions to be made. Car needs new tires. The washing machine is making some strange sounds. The house needs cleaning. And you feel like if you have to add one more thing to your to-do list, you'll scream and run out the door. That is a time of great weakness. And great need. And I'm going to go right to what I think is a critical issue for that because we all have our versions of that, whether it's divorce or not. And let me put it this way abiding in Christ, and we'll make these three statements abiding in Christ through loving Him, obedience and prayer produces the graces of the Spirit. I want to get these. I want to get these fundamentals down about what abiding in Christ is. It's not just some exotic, deeper life little talk we have when we get to John 15. It comes to situations like I've just described when you're at the end of your rope. And secondly, to abide in Christ is to enjoy Christ to the fullest. Like Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. And it is serving others, maintaining a consistent time for reading and studying the Bible and prayer. It's nourishing, abiding in Christ is communing with him. And what, what our Lord is saying there in John 15 is that he's, this is the disciple-making passage, beloved. I differ with my friends who want to inject that, some evangelistic thing. You're going to be thrown into the fire of hell, no fruit. He's saying, no, that there will be discipline, there's loss, and bear fruit, much fruit, more fruit. Bear fruit when you're at the end of your rope. God, I need you. And it's a picture of discipleship. So I would say it this way. To abide in Christ is to be shaped and changed through companionship with him. 
with him. Know what it is. Walking with him. Talking to him. Trusting him. Loving him. Being helpless before him. He'll change you. I mean, we're, we're at the inner sanctum here of Christian life. He'll change you. He'll change your motives. He'll change your moods. He'll change your attitudes. He'll change your behavior. But get it. Get it in your, in your drawing that nourishment from the vine. And growing up in him. He'll change you. He'll change you. I, I hope I, this doesn't embarrass Beth. But I want to say it this way. That Beth has affected change in my life over 50 plus years. Be 51 this June. 51. How about that? (laughs) That she has affected change in my life. I am a different person for having lived with Beth for all these years. Now, I don't want to embarrass her in those ways, but I can tell you her values her desires, her strength, her example have all been, as I look back over my life, I can say, where would I have been without that? That's companionship. That's communion. Now, she's paid a price. <laughs> Bless her heart. But I'm, sim- I'm saying that Communing with Christ, walking with him, is a life-changing experience. It really is. It really is. This is not just a matter of memorizing propositions and just knowing factoids about theology. It's a relationship. This is what he had spoke to when he had the pulpit here months ago. That's what I'm talking about. And so overcoming a divorce is the long road best traveled by communion with Christ. And if that's not there, you are in deep, deep weeds. Now, I want to conclude in this way. I have a few questions, just a few questions, and I'll run them by you. And maybe they've anticipated some of yours, so we'll see. First of all, in the case of infidelity, must the offended party in the marriage? Well, you already know that. I'd say, no, it's not required. I say the marriage can be ended at the discretion of the offended partner. A trust has been broken. Some may be able to get past infidelity. Nothing goes at the heart of a marriage like infidelity. Nothing. And some can work through it and get bad. Others can. I think Jesus has provided a mercy response in the exception in Matthew. Next question, is the offended party required to forgive? Absolutely. This is always the Christian's responsibility. And I will warn those who get caught up in the throes of divorce and that if you are the innocent, the offended party, There are dangers with that. And you would naturally, you consider yourself as having the moral high ground. I'm not the one who committed the infidelity. And it can create some blind spots, one of which is self-righteousness. You think, I'm good, I'm all right. And so you're throwing out these judgments and, well, yeah, look what the person did. Not excusing that, but watch out, watch out. What's going on in your heart and life? Thirdly, another question. What if the offended party is conflicted about the right to divorce and gets counsel to the contrary? You get my question there? What, what, you're, 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 you're wanting you're, the divorce issue. You're trying to, well, what, what should I do? What's the Bible say or how do I handle this? Well, a couple of things, <clears throat> and I'm bringing this up because I've, I've been in the middle of this number of occasions, that once you, you ought to make a decision, never make a decision based simply on what somebody else says. There are times when there are those who want 
to get a divorce are going to try to divide and conquer. They'll go to this pastor. They may even do it in a church. Go to this staff person, this person, go there. And they're running kind of a little gallop poll and seeing and trying to determine what they ought to do based upon what others believe. You've got to get on your own conscience and deal with it. And it's got to be a basis based on what you are convinced Scripture teaches. That's the basis on which God will judge you. And is the marriage bond terminable or unbreakable in these kinds of issues? Uh, next question. Um, is growing apart grounds for divorce? Uh, for you, if you're steeped in scriptures, you know what the answer to that one is. But your answer is not the culture's answer, is it? The answer is growing apart, basis for divorce? Absolutely not. Is that attention that must be given to the underlying causes? Do heart searching. Seek out a biblical counselor. I'm thinking Christians who can rationalize and think this way. You know, I've heard rationalizations like this. Well, we were never really married. Oh, you weren't. Well, what happened when you had that ceremony? What was that? Well, you see what's happening there. You're, you're trying to get yourself off the hook by, on the basis of your lack of emotional affection, affection ties. That won't work. Um, okay, I've got to leave out somewhere. We're out of time. Does, um, okay, I have to ask this one. Does God want me to stay in a marriage that is miserable and unhappy? I've been asked that one. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not laughing by any means here. Well, the answer is yes and no. He wants you to stay in a marriage, but he doesn't want you to be miserable and unhappy. Can we, can we go there? And... Don't, don't seek to make break the marriage bond. God wants his joy to be our strength. Save it together. Work on saving it alone. Work at it. It's not easy. I used to have a book here that's uh, by Dr. Wheat, Ed Wheat, physician with the Lord now, wrote a book on saving a marriage alone. It was based on a work in the book of Hosea. And I've, gave, I've given those out where you get one who's the partner, Marriage partners and they're distraught, and the other partner is just they've checked out. They haven't divorced, but they are through. They're caused shut down. Can you work on it yourself? Yes. Uh, okay, I promise this will be the last one. Is there any way to avoid a divorce? Yes and no. Um, it takes two to get a divorce. So it could be, it's possible that you are committed. You don't want a divorce, but your spouse does. And we have the no-fault divorce system to the credit of the short-sightedness of our legislators and across the country, which has just run the divorce thing in sky high. But is there a way to avoid divorce? I say, yes, there is. Mutual growth in Christ. How are you doing? I'm speaking to married folks and those who will be married. Is it like this? Hopefully you're, you're going along like this. And sometimes one will get a little further along. Of course, I'm, I'm being in, dealing in absolutes here, and growth is a little more complex than that. You can grow up in one area, but you got these other areas where grass needs to be cut, and you haven't dealt with those. So I'm oversimplifying. But say you're growing, growing, growing. Husband or wife growing, and other is not. Husband, eager for the word, takes, wants to serve God, please God. Where's the wife? Never see her. What's going on? Is she way back here or the reverse? Mutual growth in Christ. Is it going on? I hope it's happening in your home. And by the way, will there be ways, times in which one is going to mature in a way, in an area, let's put it that way, not as a total absolute, but in, in, in certain areas, one is maturing and seeing things and growing and the other is not. You know what that's for? Example. Thank you, dear. That's what, that's what you do when you grow together. You help one another. You're not adversaries. We encourage one another.
And so there ought to be then mutual accountability, church involvement and support, and watch for the warning signs. Don't ignore them. We'll have time to go through the warning signs. That's another message. That's another series. I'm stopping. This is it. Questions? you have any questions? All right. Yes, uh, Uh-huh. Well, Matthew nineteen nine does. Matthew five thirty two. Except for the case of infidelity, except for Pranaya. I think that's a valid exception. It doesn't negate the rule. It gives an assessment of the rules so you understand in this particular case if there's infidelity, pernea. Oh, absolutely. Good point. Grief. Grief. Grief is a bear. Sure, you grieve over the loss, even if it's 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 it's, just, it, 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 it's like this. It's a strange thing that a person can seek and get a divorce for the purpose of relief. I've got to have relief. You can get relief, but relief doesn't necessarily guarantee happiness. And relief can end up mixed in with grief. There's loss. And you've been married, uh, say you've been married, well, any length of time. But you get into along in life, middle life, and suddenly the thought of celebrating 50 years in a joyful way with one, uh, one, one another, poof, it's gone. The loss of a dream. And it's painful. It hurts. And... I got to be really close to the Lord Jesus Christ to work through this, sort it all out, and give him help him to enable me to, that grief can be turned into gain. And that's a that's a difficult one. Okay, uh, there are other related issues. I see another hand. All right. Yes, Joe. Yes. Now, good question. What you do when you enter into that is that that the sin of having entered into this other marriage wrongly, it's confessed and you get forgiveness. You're not continuing on to live in adultery, and you are married to that person. I think some people make the case that you know, once married, always married, even if you remarry. I think that's, that's not a careful reading of the Scripture. It says when you divorce and you marry, even in the Deuteronomy 24, they marry somebody else. And so that's uh, the argument. I think there are arguments that are made by some of those who, in their passion for the standard, which we all should have a passion for the permanency of marriage, but to make it indissoluble, I think, goes beyond what Scripture allows. And it, but they confess it and move on and grow together and serve God together and experience his mercy and grace. Anything, uh, any other question?
the person who says it's easier to ask for forgiveness than to give permission, that kind of attitude. Uh, that's, that's a, well, that is saying some very bad, ugly things about the person who says that. And uh, first of all, well, I don't have time to chase all it, but that's no go. Won't work. You're a different person after you sin. You're not the same kind of person. And uh, all right, this stirs up a very you know every one of these overcoming things. We come away with a different kind of angst, don't we? Um, anxiety and concern. And but I don't want it to be just that. That we know how to pray for one another, pray for people who've gone through divorces or whatever, and should make us enter in mercifully coming into these next week lord willing we have one more sunday night before easter and we're going to do one on overcoming a life dominating sin some may call it and i've called it in the past overcoming an addiction but i have reasons for not premiering that term a life dominating sin so that's uh We'll seek to do that next week. Lord, grant us the grace to be gracious and merciful and good counselors. And whether it is friends, family, neighbors, that, Lord, we'll be gospel people, just gospel people. Show them, Lord, that your love, forgiveness, the way to live your way. For Christ's sake, amen.